0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.
1: I got good news. You're not going to have to do a lot of thinking this week and sit back in your chair. I'm not going to give you the typical headache. I'm going to do what we call a narrative type. I'm going to tell you some stories with primary focus on Matthew 9, a fantastic story. And we're going to let that narrative come alive. Today. Today. Today.
0: Today with Jeff Vines pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and in this episode, we start a message from Pastor Jeff called Hide and Seek. He's speaking about seeking out those who are lost in our communities and those who are in need of knowing God's kingdom. We all have some experience of what it's like to feel alone, betrayed, or guilty, and today's message is about reassuring us that all are welcome in God's kingdom. Here's Pastor Jeff as he looks at the example of the disciple Matthew, the tax collector.
1: joy of the Lord. Is there a part of you that is sad that there are many around us who don't know what that is? You talk about the joy of the Lord, you're kind of, you could be looked at like you're kind of loony. And yet it's something that over a period of time that it it becomes very real to you, doesn't it? That no matter what's going on around you, you know there's a, a centralized internal joy that never goes away. And that's why I use that statement about that when you become a Christ follower and you really begin to understand what's going on, joy becomes central and sorrow only peripheral. You still have sorrowful moments. There are some of you hurting in the room right now. Within the sound of my voice right now, you're hurting and you're hoping that there's something that will kind of help things. But even in the midst of your hurt and sorrow, there is a centralized joy that no one can take away from you. Now imagine hurting in a world... Where there is no centralized joy and where there is no hope. Now, how desperate would you be to help someone who doesn't know that joy find that joy? Again, I know that we come to church often and we're all, and I don't want to say guilty because it's not guilt. It's just that we all come hoping to make it through another seven days. And we're hoping that we hear something that will encourage us along the way. This weekend... This message is not about you. It is about others. And there's healing along the way. But I just want you to relax this week. I want you to sit back in your chair. I'm giving you permission to relax. And sit back in your chair. I got good news. You're not going to have to do a lot of thinking this week. I'm not going to give you the typical headache that I usually give you. I want you to enjoy yourself this weekend. I'm going I'm to do what we call a narrative type. I'm going to tell you some stories with primary focus on Matthew 9, a fantastic story. And we're going to let that narrative come alive. So somewhere along the line, I'm going to ask you two questions. That's what I want you to focus on. Two questions that I'm going to ask you that I want you to determine what the answer is. Not later, not tomorrow, but right now. What is that answer? So on the 14th of April, many years ago, the ocean liner called the Californian was about 1,500 miles from her destination near the Boston Harbor. It's midnight. The second officer, Herbert Stone, is due for watch on the bridge. Stone arrives on deck. He finds his apprentice staring back toward the black horizon through a pair of binoculars. He has the lights of a steamer in distance, in sight. He can make out the ship's uh, masthead light, the red light. And then the glare of white lights uh, on the after deck. Stone asks his apprentice to try communicating with the Californian's Morris lap. So a bright beacon is flashed into the sky. There's no answer from the steamer. So the apprentice says, will that be all, sir? Stone says, yes. And the apprentice leaves and does what he's supposed to do. He notes the events in the patent log. Second officer, Stone, is now alone on the bridge. A white flash catches his eye. In the direction once again of the steamer, Stone scratches his head, picks up the binoculars, four more white flashes like skyrockets bursting into the heavens. Stone notifies the ship's captain. Over the voice pipe, the captain asks if the flashes appeared to be company signals. Stone says he can't say with certainty. The captain requests again communications through the ship's Morse lamp. Now Stone's apprentice, has returned back to the bridge. The beacon signal is employed once more, but there's still no answer from the steamer in the distance. Stone, still on deck, lifts the binoculars, witnesses three more bright flashes. It's like a light show. But now his attention is drawn to the steamer's cabin lights, and they seem to be disappearing as if the vessel is sailing away from them. Now it's 1.40 in the morning. Stone sees eight, eight white light flashes in the night sky. In just one hour, all of the steamer's lights vanish. So that by 4 a.m., the crew of the Californian learned the rest of the story, that neither the captain nor the second officer had interpreted the white skyrocket flashes as calls for alarm because it was a matter of coincidence that they were able to see the flashes anyway. Earlier that night, 14th of April, the Californian had reversed its engines, parked as a precautionary measure, halted in her course by immense an immense field of Arctic ice. And that unscheduled stop in the middle of the sea had provided the Californian with a ringside seat for the most unimaginable drama. The distant steamer had intended those rocket flares and distress signals for the Californian, which was only nine miles away. Who could easily get to her side, except for one thing. The steamer was also sending out signals by radio, and the Californian was well within range of those messages. But her radio operator on the Californian was asleep on the job. The Californian's fledging radio operator was fast asleep in his cabin on the very same night, the ship's second officer from his vantage point on the bridge unwittingly watched the sinking of the Titanic. Now I want you to hold on to that narrative and let me tell you a story that ends a little bit better. Matthew 9, as Jesus went on from there, on from there is, Jesus just healed a paralytic whose four friends lowered him through the roof while Jesus was teaching and Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And suddenly the writer of the book of Matthew tells us, They decided to move out from there, and they saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Matthew, similar to the Titanic, has been signaling for help for most of his life, but no one's paying attention. You say, how do you know that? Well, there are certain vocations that carried heavy social stigma in Jesus' day. Okay, one of them was a dung collector. Imagine people making that a career choice. You go to Jerusalem Tech, you get a degree, you come home and tell your parents, I've decided on my career path, I'm going to be a dung collector. Your dad tells you, son, that job stinks. (laughs) And there's even a provision made by local rabbis that if you marry a dung collector and then you decide that you can't do it anymore, you actually can divorce him legally. If you say, I thought I could handle the dung, but I can't, you can divorce. It's legal. Now, at the top of the list of social stigma, people that have gone too far, residing at the very bottom of the spiritual barrel, are tax collectors, even worse than dung collectors. Matthew's a tax collector, which again, believe it or not, is a scream for help. Israel is occupied by Rome, and Rome's greatest interest is to bleed as much money from these pesky little Hebrews as they can. And they know the best way to do that is not have Romans show up at your door to collect them, but have local Israelites bid against their own people. So if you bid, I can get $100,000 from my own people in a given year. Everything you got on top of that, you got to keep. And so uh, tax collectors were hated, despised. Of course, California politicians don't need tax collectors. They just take whatever they want without representation or authorization. But I digress. Everyone knows in Jesus' day that this is the way things work. So a tax collector is hated and assumed guilty of massive dishonesty no matter what. And the chances are high that he is guilty of massive dishonesty. Actually, archaeology helps us in this. Uh, There's a famous saying that emerges out of Jesus' day, and it goes like this. For tax collectors, repentance is hard. And what it means is, The way Jesus uses the word repentance assumes that when you genuinely repent, you're going to make restitution of the people you've wronged. But a tax collector hasn't kept records of everybody he's cheated, so it's impossible. We also discover in Roman history that the Romans actually erected a statue to an honest tax collector. They were so rare. Kind of like honest divorce lawyers. So we found one. Let's make a statue. However like many others in his profession, Matthew feels alone, isolated. See, there's a reason you become a tax collector. You're angry about something, at least in Zacchaeus and Matthew's day. You're frustrated with your own people. Maybe you feel betrayed and suddenly you think money's gonna solve everything, but it doesn't, but now you're too far gone and there's no way back because there's no tax collecting support group. There's no friends to come around and encourage you. You're all alone in this world, man, because repentance is hard for tax collectors. Now, suddenly in Matthew's life, the news of this rabbi Jesus starts spreading throughout the valley. This is a rabbi that talks about loving all people, forgiving those who have offended you, expressing grace and mercy and kindness and praying for all your enemies. And that obviously struck a chord with Matthew. And suddenly he starts to think, maybe there's a way back for me. Imagine love and grace for tax collectors. Man, I got I to meet this rabbi. Matthew has never seen a rabbi like this. This rabbi is a friend of sinners, and so he rushes probably every day after work down into the valley to listen to this rabbi Jesus, and the truth just keeps pounding him. He can't sleep, he can't eat, he can't get his mind off the possibility of changing a new life. He knows he's got to make a change, but he just can't pull the trigger because he's afraid of what other people might say or do to him. He's thinking, man, I can't enter this group of Christ followers. They'll kill me or they'll either laugh at me. I mean, I can just see Matthew thinking, I'll go try to join their group. And they'll say, everyone is welcome except you, man. You're a tax collector. Then what am I going to do? And then the Bible tells us in Matthew 9 that Jesus stops at the toll booth. And Jesus gives him a personal invitation, looks him right in the eyes and says, all right, Matthew, time to decide. Come on in out of the shadows We know who you are and it doesn't matter. One and all are welcomed in. Let's go. Change direction. Do a 180. Matthew's heart starts pounding. His palms are sweaty. He stands up and dives in, crosses over, leaves everything behind and starts a new life. Now, it's interesting. The first thing that he wants to do, the very first thing that he wants to do is throw a party. I mean, there's no break in the text. He meets Jesus. Verse 10 says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Evidently, there's no delay. Matthew's thinking, I'm a changed man. Now, remember what we've said. Matthew, it's not like we we think Jesus just happened on the toll booth, and Matthew had never seen him before. Come follow me. Okay, I'll do it. But Matthew had been listening to Jesus' podcast for a very long time. He knew knew what Jesus was about. And suddenly he's a changed man. I've been forgiven much. I've died to my old life. I'm at peace. I'm at home again. But wait, Matthew thinks to himself, obviously I have this new life with new friends, but my old friends and my old buddies have no clue. They don't know they don't have to stay stuck. They don't know they don't have to remain empty. They don't have to keep kidding themselves that everything's okay. They can be redeemed and restored and reconciled. Their lives can have meaning and purpose. Their souls can be connected to something that's eternal. Acceptance for tax collectors. Fantastic. But how can I explain this to all my old friends? I don't know how to express all this yet. I am new at the eternal life and forgiveness thing. I haven't yet gone through Joey Versace's Next Steps class but I have this burning desire and I want my friends and workmates to discover this, but I don't know how to do it. And if I try to do this just off the cuff, my friends are going to think that I've been sitting in the toll booth too long. I've gone loony. So he comes with an idea, and it's a good one. He says to himself, what if I threw a party? Maybe a backyard barbecue with Monday night football on the screen. What if I put the people from my old life and the people of my new life in the same room. And everybody likes free food and conversation. I'll get my old friends together with my new friends and and I'll just let things happen. I'll get my new friends just to walk across the room and shake hands and make conversation. And maybe, maybe the people from my old life will meet people from my new life. I'll throw this party. And maybe some of them will open themselves up to the spirit of God. And who knows, maybe a dozen or so of my old friends will wind up in the kingdom because of this party. Amen. And he sells the idea to Jesus. And Jesus says, boy, Matthew, I'll come and I'll bring the boys. So Jesus shows up and brings the boys. Now imagine the setting. Food and wine and dessert, huge banquet, Chick-fil-A caters everything. <laughs> and imagine the conversations. Because what happens at parties like these? Come on, guys. Peter, just Peter, what do you do? Now, he's talking to one of uh, Matthew's old friends. So Peter walks over to conversation. The guy says, Peter, what do you do? So I'm a fisherman. Well, how's that going? Well, to tell you the truth, not very good. We couldn't catch a cold. And then one day, Jesus fellow, this Jesus fellow comes along, and he says the silliest thing. He says, why don't you put the net on the other side of the boat? And we're all thinking, dude, what are you, crazy? The boat doesn't stay in one place. We're always spinning. It doesn't matter What's right now might be left in a few moments. But he just seemed to know what he was talking about. So the rest of my brothers and me, we decided just to cast the net. What do we have to lose? So we did. Man, there were fish everywhere. We caught so many. And so his friend from Matthew's old life says, so what you're telling me is Jesus, this Jesus guy is building your business. (laughs) No, no, not really because I closed down the fishing business. Why? Why? Well, I'm fishing for men now. Excuse me? Well, Jesus has a much better incentive plan. The more I involve myself in kingdom work, the more joy and peace, love, and completeness I experience. Retirement plan's not bad either. Gold streets, large mansions, time travel, you know. All the good stuff. You see the point here? Matthew just throws a party. He just has a gathering at his home. And he's hoping that his friends from his new life will walk across the room and begin conversation with his old friends, And there you have it. And so it begins, conversations. They talk about business, family, the kids, headlines in the Jerusalem Gazette, the Bethlehem Braves, Burning Bush League, the Jerusalem Giants, new recruit, Goliath, and seeds are planted. In some cases, they're planted, watered, and harvested at the same time, all because they're walking across the room. Now, can you grab that story? I told you it was going to be lighthearted. Take a break on yourself for a moment here. Can we go back and grab that story I told you at the beginning? Because here's what I've learned in my life in ministry. Hey, by the way, we're all in this together. i got issues like you do. You think I just walk down the street and everybody gets saved because I have a conversation with them? I only tell you the ones that turn out good. How many stories have I told you? Like four. Okay, so let's just be honest. Let's go back and grab that story. There are lights flashing all around us. There are the lives of those at work and at school, on the sporting fields, even at church, who are going down, fading into the abyss, and their distress calls are often misinterpreted. Their anger and their stress and their frustration and their agitated demeanor and their arrogance and pride and unhealthy drive to conquer everything, those are nothing less than screams of insecurity and hopelessness. They're trying to grab a lifesaver, as they continue to sink deeper and deeper into anxiety and depression at the realization that it's all going to end one day soon. It's all arrogance, but it's a cover-up for insecurity because the soul is desperate for meaning and hope to attach to something that's eternal. Unfortunately, as they send out the distress signals, you and I are dozing off asleep on the job when we should be attentive and praying for and looking for opportunities to say, come follow me. In the latest Barna Research Group survey, here's what they discovered. Less than 33% of all Christians actively share their stories of faith and hope in Christ. That's one-third. However, in the same survey, they learned that more than 79% of the unchurched people said they would engage in faith conversations if asked. How is it that there can be such a gap? Let me tell you something else. Millennials, millennials, I get to brag on you. I'm going to brag on you because it's my generation letting you down. Barna also discovered that millennials who identify as born again were the most likely age group to share their faith and that their evangelism habits were growing while other generations were dropping. In 2013, two-thirds of millennials said that they had presented the gospel to someone within the past year compared to half of born-again Christians in general. Additionally, practicing Christian millennials have the strongest belief in the Bible and read it more than any other generation. 87% do so multiple times a week, according to the 2016 Barna survey on behalf of the American Bible Society. (laughs) Did anybody notice something here? I told you last week that millennials want the real thing or nothing. They want, give me the real thing or nothing. And when you have the real thing, guess what happens? There's a cause and effect. Let me give you an example in Acts 4. They called the disciples in, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? Listen to you or listen to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about the things we've seen and heard. See, when you've truly been transformed, you can't help but to speak about the transformation that's occurred in your life. Unfortunately, For we non-millennials, here's what we think. Here's what we've been taught to think. Just live a good life and that'll be enough. Let me read the quote. If we just live good enough lives, we can forgo the conversation entirely. We don't need to talk about Jesus. We just be good people. And people around us will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and selfless character. Does anybody see the obvious problem? You're not that good. You're not good. People from other religions may even be better than you. Atheists may be morally better than some of you. So you may live a a good life, but if you don't explain why, they will kind of grab you in and lump you in with everybody else. This style, the Barnard Report says, of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a culture constantly looking for a fast track and simple fix. In other words, it doesn't cost me anything. I live a good life. I'm good. The gospel is a gospel of words and actions. It is a story of history, his story, and your story, and how they intersect. Can I say that again? The gospel is a story of his story, history, and my story, and how they intersect. And in Matthew nine thirteen, later on in the same passage, Jesus says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the, I love the Greek word for call. I notice driving down. The street in front of San Dimas School, there is a real estate sign and it's called Kaleo real estate. That's a Greek word. And it means to call and gather and to speak. So all in that one word means it, is, it, is, it assumes that Jesus came to call and to speak and to gather. Unfortunately, here's what happens in our world today. We call people near and then isolate away.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: Are there any of you in the room still hiding? Can I tell you someone who walked across the universe for you? Man, he didn't walk across the room. He walked across the universe, across the cosmos. The reason he did that is to stretch out his hands for people who are smack dab in the middle of making a mess out of their lives.
0: You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fiennes wherever you listen to podcasts.